Hello, you're listening to All About Eater on the World Radio Paris. I'm your host, Crudy, and I'll be discovering what the Eater Project and Fusion Energy are all about. Eater is one of the most ambitious energy projects ever attempted. It is here in the south of France that a coalition of 35 nations is collaborating to build the largest and most powerful device to prove the scientific and technological feasibility of fusion power. Come and join me in this audio journey. Hello to the curious listeners out there. Happy to have you back on our fifth episode on Eater. I'm Crudy and I'm here with Anna Bondareva from Eater Communications. Hi everybody, I'm glad to be with you again. And so are we. So today we get technical. We know that Eater Project is one of the most technically complex projects in the world in every way possible. They're building the biggest machine ever to make fusion energy possible, which is essentially one of the largest experiments ever made in our human history. All right, and on top of that, it's only possible because engineers, scientists, managers and policymakers from more than 30 countries are putting their heads together to actually make it possible. But we do it in the most unusual way. Why unusual? Well, let me explain a bit. Uh, how is a normal business uh, done? Yeah? Um, you say, pay me for my product and my service and I will do it for you. But ITER has embarked upon the collaboration with its own system, so-called in-kind contributions. Uh, how does it actually work? We're going to let the experts explain it in more in detail. Yes. However, you may already know that the complexity of this project itself requires the highest technical aptitude, attention to every detail, anticipating unprecedented problems while being able to communicate to people from different cultures without offending anyone. Yeah, and moreover, uh, that in-kind procurement sharing program adds another dimension of complicated stuff for ITER. So that's why today we'll be talking with some very capable people that are on the ground working, connecting, collaborating and anticipating all the kinks that need to be in place to execute this wonderful yet challenging project. We'll be going to them now and asking all the questions you may or may not have thought about. Let's go. So we're here with Mr. Hans Henrik Altfeld and we are going to be talking about project control, and especially in-kind contribution. But before we get into that, Mr. Altfeld, you've got a very difficult job and role to do here. Can you tell us a bit more about you before we begin? What is your role and how are you able to accomplish everything that you need to do here? Yes, so I joined ITER in January 2017. Uh, joining also with this the uh, Fusion Energy uh, Project. Uh, I'm not a fusion engineer or in, uh, having any fusion uh, background whatsoever. I come from aerospace and automotive. But I have some knowledge about how to manage complex projects in aerospace and in automotive. And it is uh, this industry know-how which was attractive for ITER so that ITER recruited me to bringing this know-how into this project. And so my role here is to run the project control office, which is in charge to project control ITER, which means to uh, control the schedule, control the costs, manage the risks, manage opportunities, and do what is called in-kind contribution. 
Okay. Can you tell us a bit more about Inkwank contributions? Certainly. So, when ITER was set up, um, the governance of ITER was determined and laid down in what is called the ITER Agreement. And as part of this ITER Agreement, there is uh, the ITER organization which manages the project, the project on its own, manages the project. And so the members provide cash to the ITER organization for its running expenses. So my salary, for example, is directly paid through this in-cash contribution. Okay. But then there is another very important part of this ITER agreement, which is about this famous in-kind contribution. And the in-kind contribution says that each member state has to deliver free of charge for the ITER organization a certain amount of uh, elements and components for this ITER machine. Of course, in order to organize that, we have in each of the member states uh, part of the overall ITER project, and these parts are called domestic agencies. And these domestic agencies manage and arrange these in-kind contributions. So what is an in-kind contribution? It is typically hardware, also software, but let's predominantly talk about hardware here. Big hardware components or small hardware components, which they arrange, but deliver free of charge for the ITER organization. And the funding for these components is paid by the respective member state, by the government of the member state, to this domestic agency, and the domestic agency then uses that money to procure these components from the local industry. ITER organization has to arrange all of that. It has to define who does what, and it has to, of course, technically integrate all the components. It has to secure that the quality is right when the components arrive here, and many other things. But the, the, the uh, contribution in kind is something which the domestic agencies are in charge of. So these member countries, when they are actually contributing and they're giving the hardware components like you talked about to the ITER project, how do they benefit? Why is it that they want to do that free of charge? Um, so the ITER agreement is an agreement between um, seven different member states, whereby one member state is the EU, plus Switzerland. And the benefit, of course, is a joint learning of how to do a future nuclear fusion power reactor. And therefore, there was uh, a lot of competition between the member states. Who does which component? Because it is about gaining know-how about new technologies and therefore providing a competitive edge to the local uh, industry. And as a result of all these negotiations, it was then determined in, in a long list of who does exactly what. And some components where more than one member state was really interested to uh, provide because of the learning for this component uh, are in fact provided by two or three member states, which of course is from a cost perspective, uh, not ideal if I, if I approach it with industrial mindset, with the mindset of profit-oriented organizations. Mm -hmm. 
But the mantra here or the, the, the underpinning theme is really that seven member states want jointly to learn how to build a nuclear fusion reactor. And that is ultimately the benefit. That's great. It's like a barter system. Almost. Yes. We give you the parts and you tell us afterwards how we're going to make the full machine yeah, with all the parts. By giving the parts, the member states have certain rights. And these rights uh, include, among other, free access to all the uh, information which is generated, all the technology data, all the other governance data, project control data. The whole thing of the ITER project is shared commonly uh, among all member states. And of course, when it comes to uh, research capabilities or research uh, operations after the actual machine has been built, that is where all the member states can uh, provide scientists to do the research. So this is the other big benefit. Yeah. <clears throat> and do you also think that with this whole idea of in-kind contribution, where everybody kind of gets, it's like a barter system like you just talked about earlier, it's also very collaborative. It sounds very collaborative. And the whole idea of ITER as well is to collaborate, to make sure that we can gain perspectives and knowledge and know-how, like you said, from everyone. Do you think that this could be applicable to maybe other organizations so that, you know, in this age of globalization and... Yes, so I think that uh, this could be a blueprint for um, technically driven projects of the future. And clearly some of the main challenges we face as mankind, uh, environmental change, climate change, uh, too much CO2 in atmosphere, yeah. uh, water supply in many regions of the world, and so on. There are many, many challenges, uh, you know, garbage in the sea and so on. It requires, maybe not only, but certainly also, it requires technical solutions. Yes. And these technical solutions may be very expensive to develop. So it is foreseeable that nations have to join their forces in order to come up with good solutions for these challenges. And that requires a certain management governance model. And therefore, what we are doing here at ITER could well turn out to be a blueprint. If I can just add one more thing, there are other organizations which are international, which do it differently, which are not working with an in-kind contribution system. For example, the European Space Agency, it, is, uh, it consists of all member states of the European Union. And here it is uh, money given by the governments directly to the European Space Agency, who then organizes the uh, components itself. So there is no domestic agency in each of the uh, member states. Um, and my conclusion, if I compare this model of the European Space Agency with the model we have here, with the in-kind contributions, is the following. Um, the model for the European Space Agency is absolutely possible if the nations have already uh, knowledge of how to work together, culturally are not too different, and they can use a common language to directly contract suppliers in all the territories of the, oh, of the members. Yes. Here we are talking at ITER about really a 
global international project. And so if we would apply the model of the European Space Agency, that would mean that this organization here in, in Kadarash, here on site, would have to directly manage, let's say, a Chinese supplier in a little village somewhere in China, or oh. an Indian one, or a US one, and so on. And that seems too much of a challenge because you would need to know the uh, ways of working in supplier-contractor relationships of each of those countries. You would need to, you need to have the language. You need to have translators a lot because uh, what we develop here as procedures is all in English, but a Chinese or Indian or US or US, yes, but would not understand it. And so we need these domestic agencies as a translator, basically, what we are doing here as an integrator in the ITER organization to speak and deal with the local suppliers in the different member states. And so I believe, I really believe that this model of the European Space Agency does work for Europe because after all we are relatively close together in terms of culture and language capabilities and so on. Um, but for a, a real global project, it may have to do the in-kind contribution approach. And this is where I think that ITER can provide really good lessons learned for future projects. Oh, fantastic. Um, however, uh, I would still think that because you have so many countries involved, so many domestic agencies, and like you mentioned, all the languages, technical capabilities are different, what are the problems that you face um, to get all those components on time here to build the tokamak? Yeah, so the in-kind contribution system is not the same as a classical standard supplier-contractor relationship where the customer uh, gives the money to the supplier and, and has a certain lever to change things on the supplier side in case the supplier does not perform as expected, for example. And so these levers are reduced in the in-kind contribution system in the relationship between the ITER organization and the domestic agencies. Between the domestic agencies and the suppliers, it's okay. That would be the classical approach. But between the ITER organization and the domestic agencies, uh, there is limits to how far we can go. So this project needs to work much more with aspects of uh, good argumentation, with motivation, with trying to convince uh, things. Uh, so it is uh, clearly uh, only successful if we all stay behind the common goal, which is to make this machine successful. And of course, there is friction like in every other project. And I've shown the advantages, but the disadvantage is clearly we cannot deal with the DAs in the same way we would deal with a normal supplier. Oh, so does that mean with the DAs, um, you have to really convince them that, yes, please build it on time? W what's the concrete well, issue. the domestic agencies uh, also have their limitations, of course. Ah, they don't have yes. endless money. Ah, and yes. if they face delays and the ITER organization tells them, yeah, you have to hurry up, otherwise we have a problem, 
then uh, they may say, but my government is not giving me more money and therefore oh. I cannot really speed up, okay? Yeah. So that is where uh, there are certain limitations. And then there's a lot of discussions and eventually a solution will be found. But uh, it's just different to a normal supplier-contractor relationship. That's what I wanted to say. Okay. Um, and as you mentioned, your own background, I think it was an engineer um, with a degree in aerospace, aeronautical and astronautical engineering. Is that correct? Um, with what, what you've done also in Airbus and your experience before, what qualities do you think has really helped you succeed in handling such a complex project with so many deadlines and so many domestic agencies that are involved? Yes. So um, there are certain methods which you can learn um, over time uh, to manage complexity in general. So uh, managing complexity is all about breaking things down to a level where you don't would not call them complex anymore, but only complicated. But the difference between complex and complicated is comple the word complex has the notion of the perception that is not fully under control, the thing is not fully under control. Whereby things which are complicated, there is the notion, yeah, they are still difficult to manage, but I have the possible, I know in the end how to do it. And so when you are able to break down complexity into elements which are regarded as complicated, then you have done a big step forward. And so in project management, and in particular in the project management of complex projects, it is very, very relevant to have everywhere breakdowns into levels which can be dealt with on a complicated as a complicated matter. Yeah? Uh, so this is one of the tricks. Uh, but exactly how to do this, uh, you need to read my book because I, I wrote a book about it. Okay, uh, But then there is also a lot about um, uh, soft skills and uh, leadership skills, of course, which need to be developed. Um, so managing such a complex project is by far not only a thing which you can deal with on, a, on the basis of a method. There is a lot of other things uh, and they do touch uh, social aspects and leadership aspects as well in the end to make it successful. Also the aspect of going at risk. You, you, if you always wait until you have full knowledge of a situation, you will delay the project. You need, as a manager, to sometimes say, it's good enough, 80% is sufficient, I go ahead this direction. I may have made a mistake, but I'll take the responsibility for it. So it requires really, uh, among other, also a lot of senior people to, with a good experience to manage it properly. So recruitment of people is another very important aspect. You need to recruit adequate profiles to run such a project. Yeah? So the whole HR component is very relevant in such a project as well. Wow. Um, and then, so for nuclear fusion itself, do you think for, let's say, normal people who are not scientists or who are not aware of what it is, would you call nuclear fusion complex or complicated? In general, nuclear fusion is definitely uh, complex because yeah. we are really at the beginning of mastering a power source which is reliable in the sense that it can deliver uh, energy for mankind. We do have uh, experience with other fusion machines. They are generally called tokamaks, is at least one way of building them. Uh, but none of them so far has generated more energy than the energy needed to operate it. 
Uh, and so they largely concentrate on what is called plasma physics, on the, on the physics of the gas in which diffusion power is generated. Whereby here at the ITER project, we try um, to get 10 times more energy out of the machine compared to the energy we inject into it. And so this is uh, a fundamental step forward. And we are in some areas, perhaps even in many areas, really at the limits of physics. And therefore, it is uh, extremely complex because we need to learn on a daily basis. We need to bring it to a level of complicated in order to industrialize it and at one day uh, produce nuclear fusion power plants in the same way as today nuclear fission power plants are produced. Uh, today's nuclear fission power plants, I would think, are complicated. They are no longer complex. But that is not yet the case for, uh, for fusion power. So there's complex and complicated and nothing is simple. Simple. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be working here if this would be simple. I would get bored. That is yeah? true. So, uh, <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Um, all right. So I've also loved what you said um, earlier when you talked about how 80%, perhaps you know what you're doing and then afterwards you just have to take a risk. And we hope that with the risk that we are taking here at ITER that it will um, bear fruit. Um, yeah, because we are really looking forward to nuclear fusion happening. Thank yeah. you so much, Mr. Altman, for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we are here now and speaking with Mr. François Genevieve. Is that correct? Correct. The transport director at Daher, who is in charge of ITER and safely delivering all the in-kind contributions from around the world meaning all the components that have been manufactured by the member states to either headquarters here in France, either by road, plane or ship. So since the beginning, Mr. Francois has helped Ita and Daher overcome the challenges of transporting complex pieces of unique machineries on time, which is a feat of its own. So we will be speaking to him now on how they manage this daily challenge. So Mr. Francois, very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, and thank you for this interview. <laughs> yes, can you please introduce yourself and your role here with ITER? Okay, so I'm François Genevieve, as you said. I'm the head of uh, DAER for ITER Logistics. And I've started this, um, this, this work in um, 2012, when we signed the contract in February 2012. And since the last 10 years, I've been operating with my team, the Global Logistics for ITER. International logistics from factories to sites, but as well site logistics, meaning when we receive the uh, components, we also operate their maintenance, storage, and ultimate delivery to contractors on sites. So altogether, we are a team of 70 people, uh, fully dedicated to these contracts and based in ITER sites. Wow, that's a massive feat. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, as you said, you work with each DA from around the world and right. everybody has their own deadlines and their own components that they have to build, manufacture and transport. So let's say how many times in a year or a month, I'm not sure which is the best metric, do you have to transport the components here to France? Well, I, I would say uh, nearly every week's. <laughs> Every week. Every week, yeah. We, we, we have a permanent uh, deliveries, uh, permanent deliveries from um, all over the countries. 
uh, another the world and we um, but it comes into phases uh, for instance 2018-19 where India years then Korea took over oh. and then the US now are delivering a lot so it's uh, some kind of phases but altogether we are I mean, permanent uh, relationship with all DAs for their deliveries. Wow. Altogether, it's about maybe um, 20,000 packages which are which have been delivered since uh, the early days, since globally 2015. So it's, uh, as you can see, it's a lot of... Uh, a, lot. a lot of shipments. <laughs> and right. is it usually... What is the main um, transportation mode? Is it... Trucks, cars. For for nine for for ninety percent of the contracts, it's ocean shipping. Okay. It's by by sea, by ship, because uh, first it's uh, more economical, and secondly, uh, the, the 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 usually the um, components are big, and cannot be transported in another mode than by ocean. Wow. Especially from the countries. Uh, which are uh, not in this continent, European continents. Of course, for European suppliers, uh, manufacturers, then we deliver by truck, like from Russia, for instance. Most of the uh, shipments from Russia are delivered by truck. But for other DAs, like Japan, China, India, US, uh, Korea, it comes by, um, by sea. Wow. Mm -hmm. So let's say if it's coming by sea, what kind of things... Do you have to really make sure are correct? Are there any conditions that have to be met in order to meet the deadlines? Because, for example, if you have the deadline October 10 and it's coming by sea, what are the things that you have to check to make sure it reaches on time? Well, the, the main important part of our job is the planning. Uh, with the English term of planning, which means preparations. So we work a lot with the um, domestic agency on this planning, and we have to prepare first the administration of the shipments, which goes through uh, ultimately a task order that we receive from each DA. But this task order uh, includes uh, a shipping plan Shipping plan of load, as we call it, SPL, shipping plan of load. And in this shipping plan of load, we try and plan uh, the packing uh, of this shipment, the marking of these shipments, the um, uh, customs operation of the shipment, the insurance of these shipments. And ultimately, when everything is ready, then the actual delivery, which goes through shipping, uh, booking, uh, and all segments of transportation up to the sites. But are there any ex external factors that you have to take into account, such as um, weather or COVID? I'm sure when that happened, that must have <laughs> been difficult, to yes, say the least. COVID has been a real issue because during this period of COVID and still now, uh, traveling has been difficult. And uh, knowing that for every um, critical shipment, we send people, experts from here to the factory of origin to participate to the preparation and to the ex execution of transportation. 
So, yeah, during this period of wow. uh, COVID situation, uh, we had some difficulties to, to travel. And then we have to imagine some other way uh, of, uh, of inspection, uh, such as um, uh, having local experts uh, checking for us, being our oh. ears and eyes for this uh, preparation. So we had surveyors, we had to do training, e-training, uh, and of course, yeah. we um, emphasized a lot uh, communication. Yeah, that's very essential. But uh, as you said, weather is also an issue. We, we work with uh, uh, regions where you find uh, typhoons or this kind of, uh, of, uh, of climatic uh, issues. So we, we have, a, of course, a map and uh, where appear all the typhoons, for instance. So we have to be careful with, uh, with this period of times. And we try and uh, operate uh, Outside. In, with these conditions. Okay. Wow. That's fascinating, though. So much work goes into that. Um, I would also like to ask you, what are the types of challenges you face when transporting giant components? You already talked about COVID and the weather and all the administrative things. But, for example, you had a huge, is it 320 tons magnet from Japan that came? Well, 320 tons is without the frame oh, without, without the packing. <laughs> what was it exactly? What was this? So the, 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 the weight is over 400 tons. Oh, it was Oh my gosh! It's um, it's nearly eleven meters wide. And what was it? Can you remind us? It's a TF coil, meaning toroidal field coil. Okay. And it's a magnet. It's a magnet. And it's a, a four hundred ton magnet. Four hundred ton <laughs> magnets. Okay. And, and we have nineteen of those to deliver. Ten out of Europe, Italy, and nine out of uh, Japan. Wow. So they are big, uh, very important, first-of-a-kind components, which are massive in terms of size and weight, but in, in the meantime, very fragile because they are uh, full of uh, electronics and uh, full of uh, Magnetic magnets and, and very uh, technological devices. So it's in the meantime, big, heavy, but very fragile. So we had to... Uh, I mean, this preparation for this kind of components goes over several years uh, where we had to uh, work with IO and the DAs, European or Japan DA, for um, the engineering of a specific frame called chassis, um, in charge of um, mitigating the risk of distortion during the ship acceleration or transport acceleration or handling acceleration for avoiding um, the, the component to, um, to have uh, flexion, say flexion, or to have distortion. Uh, so we, um, that's a lot of work where the frame that was designed um, had a role of absorbing these accelerations and preserving the component itself. Okay, so it was like a safety box, it's kind of like a, kind of a giant 
safe yeah. box so that the magnet would be safe inside. Right. And that's you, also what added the weight? Yes, exactly. To give you an idea, the frame of such components is over 100 tons, oh, the frame itself. Yeah. So what would be, what were the big challenges when you have to transport such a thing over the sea or on the road? Well, the, the, the main challenge is to avoid any, any damages. Mm. There is there a zero default which is required and demanded because it's first of a kind components and if any damage occurs, <laughs> then it will need several years to replace it. True. So that could be the death of the project. True. So transportation is only a little part of this huge project, but in the meantime, it's very... Uh, it's very challenging because we cannot uh, afford any uh, any default in these, in these global logistics. So everything has to be uh, very accurately prepared from the factory up to the port of departure. Often we have, for these kind of components, like for Japan, a first barge transportation to, to, to transport from the factory to the main origin ports like Yokohama or Kobe. Then we have the ocean transportation, which takes about 35, 40 days with sometimes huge uh, sea conditions, ocean conditions. Then we have the uh, transshipment in Foss, in part of Marseille, uh, to the quay. Then we have another barge from Foss to the port of Bear, crossing the... Uh, Lake of Bear, the Pond of Bear. And then we have the 104 kilometers from Bear to a site that take, for these kind of components, four nights. Wow, four nights. Four nights. And we, have, we go through narrow uh, roads sometimes, or narrow areas. And uh, so it's global challenge with a lot, a lot of uh, control. And I guess you need like special trucks or special ships to carry these things. Yeah, we have special so ships, special barges, special mm. trailers. Yeah. Among the most, uh, the, the, the largest vessels of this kind, which are geared with big cranes about the vessels, around, I mean, about the vessel. And these cranes uh, usually are 400 tons each, able <sighs> to um, unload safely these components with um, sufficient speeds in order not to uh, damage um, the components. And of course, we have special barges and special trailers uh, for the ultimate deliveries. Wow. So actually, when you're transporting such <clears throat> large components, and like you said, it took four nights, what actually happens, what impact does it have on the local transport? So for example, just coming from the port in Marseille and up to Eater um, mm -hmm. here, and you have to go through all these um, little roads, do you have to close it down? What happens to people like us who need to come up here for work? <laughs> yeah, right. So the, the beauty of this uh, operation uh, organized by France for the, as, a, as a host country and by Europe uh, as a host party was to, um, to build an itinerary in, in France and the local parts which is uh, for 80% of it public itinerary. So it's public roads. So th these public roads were enlarged, were, were prepared to welcome these huge uh, components, 
with the construction of bridges. We had 20 uh, new bridges which were built for it. It cost over 120 million euro to build this, uh, to, 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 to arrange these roads. Um, and in order to, uh, to safely transport it on the French itinerary, we only drive at night, night time. So we drive from 10 o'clock to 6 in the morning, 10 o'clock at night to 6 in the morning. And we are, uh, we are surrounded by about 80 police people, gendarmerie. Uh, and these uh, gendarmes, these uh, police people are in charge of preserving the, um, uh, the security of 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 this um, of this component of this trailer, this convoy. So they they avoid uh, drivers to come into the convoy, and we progress into what we call a bull, bull, uh, like bubble, into a bubble, okay. into a bubble, and this bubble is closed for a few kilometers and then reopened progressively to the traffic. Okay. Okay, so uh, in between we have people dismantling, uh, companies dismantling the panels, the signs, because it's too big, uh, and then remounting it after we, we passed. Uh, we have uh, third-party controllers, surveyors, to, to see if the road can be reopened to public. Okay. Uh, and we have some, something like 120 uh, workers for each convoy during four nights from the port to the sites. So it's a huge logistics, a huge organization. But now after uh, like six years of experience, and now we have transported 150 of these highly exceptional loads. Wow. It's not a routine because routine cannot be a word in our in our job. We are, it's like we would every new convoy is the first convoy we have to uh, we have we have to. You are prepare. never bored. <laughs> it's not routine is not the word, but at least experience paying. And now um, I must say that all the people around these convoys are very much um, skilled. And uh, up to now we had no um, no defaults and no no damages. But that's great. Fantastic. Um, finally, I would like to also know when you have to actually have all these convoys come in, the big ones. Has there been any time where you personally have had to go or to see what it's like or at, at least been here at Eater to welcome or to see these big um, components get here because it's such a big feat. It's not really been done before. No, it's the first time. I think it's the first time in, this, in France, by the way, because usually these big projects are executed by the ports in order to avoid this inland transportation. So uh, that was never done before. True. So it's uh, for us as well, for Daer, it's first of a kind and for all the people around this uh, area in the south of France, the first of a kind as well. Uh, so yes, we had to uh, be present for most of the convoy and we have um, their people 
uh, accompanying the, uh, the, 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 the transports, receiving the components here, making sure that when we deliver and when we unload, it's safely done. And of course, ITER is present as well. And most of the time, DA's representatives are also uh, here to, uh, at the port to receive the components out of the boats, out of the ship, and on site to receive the components when it's unloaded from the trailers. Wow. So yes, it's, uh, it's very, very much uh, looked after, yeah, very much. But so that must be wonderful to actually see all the, all the work that everybody has done together, all this coordination and planning to actually finally see it and to be rewarded that, okay, it's done, it's, it's enormous. safe. It's enormous. Yeah. It's, uh, every success has been is being uh, shared shared with everyone. And uh, sometimes you have, I mean, 50 people on site receiving the components and being here to, uh, to, 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 uh, to, to share up together and, um, and, and really, um, yes, uh, being part of it. Wow. Mm. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and all the things that you've shared with us. I think it's a wonderful feat and challenge that you're doing. And well, I hope that we can continue to see new components coming in and safely. Yeah. The, 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 one of the big challenges we have is to keep our staff who has been working with this contract for, for, for the last 10 years keep this stuff in alerts, in permanent alert. This is a challenge, sure. but thanks to the uh, importance of this project for the humanity and for, for the science, for the people in the future, thanks to that, we have people still motivated. And uh, I think the rewards for, for us all to be yeah. part of it. Because they believe in it, so it gives them that reason Believe in it, they trust. Uh, we have a very... I mean, the cultural aspects of these projects dealing with all these countries. We are 35 countries True. working this, in this project, for this project. is one very um, unique experience. It's true. And being here for quite a while, uh, we have very good relationship with all the stakeholders, among which I.O. We have uh, our I.O. logistics team. We... Whom we, with whom we are very close to, and uh, really it's, uh, it's an everyday uh, challenge, but also um, very much rewarding. And do you have to always speak in different languages every time you are coordinating with all these different DAs around the world? C can you repeat the question, sorry? Do you have to s find out how to actually communicate oh, yes. yeah. with everybody? Because not everybody speaks the same language either. Well, the, the common language is English to, yeah. for everyone, so that's practical. Yeah. But what is different is the culture. Okay. Of course, we, uh, and that's part of the uh, nice experience we, we, we did every day. But yes, of course, we uh, have many dif cultural differences between the Japanese, uh, Indian, uh, Americans, Russian, Chinese, uh, and so Korean, and so on. But this is part of, um, uh, of, of the experience, I would say. And uh, I mean, for, for our staff dealing week after week with all these countries, it's quite, uh, it's quite nice. Well, 
That's wonderful. Thank you again for so much. It's a pleasure. Your time and okay. hope to talk to you soon. Don't hesitate. Managing such a complex project from the different corners of the world isn't easy, but the spirit of collaboration and working towards the feasibility of a limitless energy source that finally doesn't produce harmful air pollutants is shown through the in-kind contribution system that ETA has created. Though the concept itself isn't new, its use in such magnitudes definitely is. Our next episode will also be our final one in this deep dive series on ITER, where we will be speaking about fusion energy and the environment. Don't miss it!